Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 399th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most artistically and commercially successful producers in Hollywood history. A man who, for 53 years, has helped to realize the visions of filmmakers, including Peter Bogdanovich, Walter Hill, Martin Scorsese, George Lucas, Robert Zemeckis, M. Night Shyamalan, David Fincher, Paul Greengrass, and, most famously, Steven Spielberg, with whom he has collaborated on and off for 40 years, often in tandem with his wife of nearly 35 years, Kathleen Kennedy, with credits including The Last Picture Show, Paper Moon, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Gremlins, The Goonies, The Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Sixth Sense, Seabiscuit, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, all five installments of the Indiana Jones franchise, all three installments of the Back to the Future franchise, three installments of the Jurassic Park franchise, and all five installments of the Bourne franchise collectively resulting in five Best Picture Oscar nominations and more than $6.1 billion worth of ticket sales at box offices in North America alone. A 2018 recipient, alongside his wife, of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences' highest honor for a producer, the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award, Frank Marshall. Over the course of our conversation, the 74-year-old and I discussed how he got into producing by volunteering to assist Bogdanovich with his feature directorial debut. The chance encounter a few years after that, which led to his long collaboration with Spielberg and then through Spielberg to his future wife, establishing a trio which would co-found and for a decade co-run Amblin Entertainment before Kennedy and Marshall went off on their own to form the Kennedy Marshall Company. Why he has occasionally ventured into directing on projects like 1990's Arachnophobia, 1993's Alive, 1995's Congo, 2006's Eight Below, and most recently, the acclaimed 2020 HBO documentary The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, which is nominated for five Emmys, including Best Documentary or Nonfiction Special and Best Directing for a Documentary or Nonfiction Program, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Frank, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Great to have you, and congrats on the Emmy nomination. And uh, 
Thank you, my first. Is your first? Wow. Okay, I can't believe that. Wow. So first, first as a director. Okay. No. Well, that's fantastic, and I'm of course gonna come to plenty of BG's related stuff. But on this podcast, we go right from the very beginning. So if you wouldn't mind just telling our listeners, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was uh, actually born in Glendale, California. Uh, I was raised out in the San Fernando Valley until we moved to Newport Beach for high school. So I went to high school in Newport and then I went to UCLA. So I've never left the West side. <laughs> and, uh, and I guess you were a- athletics have always been a big part of your life. Yes. Athletics and music. My dad was, um, was a composer, arranger, played jazz guitar. So I grew up in a musical family. Um, he was under contract at Capitol records. Um, and my mom played piano. So uh, there was a lot of music in our house as I was growing up. All right. So eventually you go off to, to UCLA and I don't believe it was with a specific focus on film at first. So how, what was it and how did we end up uh, with you in on a film path? No, I was kind of uh, a normal teenager and had no idea what I wanted to do when I went to, to UCLA. Um, I started, I, I did like a semester in engineering and then I went into uh, theater arts for a couple of semesters, and then I ended up in poli sci. But along the way, I took a couple of classes in uh, in theater arts, and and one of them was uh, movies. And uh, a wonderful uh, professor whose name uh, Gray, uh, Harold Gray, or, okay. yeah, I forget his name, but he had written this book on the history of movies. So we had this little paperback book. And so, you know, I thought, great. So I learned by just watching great old movies. And I loved movies, but I had no idea how they got made. But I I knew I was drawn to entertainment. I liked, you know, the drama classes in high school. And I was in the little theater group down in Orange County. And so I knew I'd either go into music or something that was related to entertainment. And then I met Peter Bogdanovich at a party and the rest is history. Well, I'm going to stop you there because of course I want to ask you about that. But I first also have seen in a few of the uh, interviews you've done before that I read prepping for this, you've talked about the sand pebbles being a, a major movie for you. And I don't know if it was, it seems like that would have been right while you were at UCLA. And I don't know if it was just a movie you loved or if it was a movie that made you want to make movies, but anything you want to say about that? Well, I remember it sort of fondly. It's it's a bittersweet memory for me because I was recovering from the first of many knee surgeries. I had torn my cartilage playing soccer at UCLA in 1967. And and as a sort of, uh, you know, I was going on crutches and one of my best friends in high school took me to see the sand pebbles. And of course, seeing the sand pebbles and realizing that you could be transported to, you know, different places and and what a movie could do. I really started thinking, yeah, this this could be something I'd be interested in doing. I had no idea how to get into the movie business at that time. It was before I had met Peter. And but I just loved that movie. And and we used to, you know, quote lines from the movie. And it's you know, I was just uh, fell in love with movies. Um, and then, you know, uh, 
as as things would happen, uh, was in the right place at the right time. And, uh, you know, uh, just said when Peter said, I'm going to make my first movie, I said, hey, I'd love to work on it. Well, let's just set the scene, though, because, I mean, of all things, this is at a what a birthday party for John Ford's daughter. I've read like, so how do you even end up there? I, and why was he there? Okay. Well, it was a, it was the connection with my dad. Uh, my dad was in the army with an actor named Ken Curtis, yeah, who was a part of the sons of the pioneers, which was Mr. Ford's, you know, sort of go-to musical group. They're in almost every one of his movies. Yeah. And, and Ken was married to Barbara Ford, John Ford's daughter, who was an editor and they lived out in Toluca Lake when I was growing up and they had a pool. So we would always go over to their house to swim in the summer when it was really hot because nobody had air conditioning. So I, you know, stayed friends with them, uh, you know, my whole life. And when I went to UCLA, Mr. Ford lived on Copa de Oro just off sunset there. So I left my little motor scooter in his garage every summer. And I had met him a couple of times. But then one Christmas, I think it was 1966, my dad said, hey, there's a birthday party for Barbara. You're right there. We'll come up. We'll see each other. And there'll be a lot of really famous actors and actresses there. I said, cool, I'll, I'll go. So I went to this party. And sure enough, there was Ward Bond and John Wayne and Joanne Drew and Harry Carey Jr. And of course, Ken and Barbara. It was Barbara's birthday. And there was... There was her dad, John Ford, and I had just taken that movie class. So I had seen a lot of his movies. And so it was like incredibly intimidating to be there, but also great. Yeah. And then down the stairs came this uh, cute little girl with a pixie haircut and bubbly and said, isn't it great how many wonderful actors are here and everything? And I said, yeah. Uh, it's And so I was sort of proud of the fact that I knew Mr. Ford's movies and I could really actually talk about them because I had just taken this class. And she said to me, you love movies? I said, oh, I love movies. And she said, well, come on in. You need to meet my husband. And I kind of said, oh, really? Oh, okay. But saying to myself, I don't want to meet your husband. I right. you. Yeah. So, so I admit it now. And it was Polly Platt. Ah. Uh. Yeah, who turned out then to be my mentor and great friend and just a fabulous, fabulous woman. But, you know, so she took me in and I met Peter and they were there doing a documentary on Ford. And but he had just met Roger Corman and Roger Corman asked him to shoot some second unit on Wild Angels. For all of the things that I didn't know I wanted to be and all of the confusion I was in about my career, Peter knew that he wanted to be a director. He was now he was seven years older than me. So maybe it was, you know, that time uh, it took to. Uh, but he knew definitely what he wanted to do in life. So I said, look, I, I love, you know, working in productions and things. I've done a little theater group. And, you know, uh, if if you make this movie and you come back, give me a call. And of course, I forgot about it. You know, because people always say, oh, yeah, I will. And you, know, you never hear from him. Right. Well, sure enough, three months later, my dad called me and said, Do you meet somebody named Bob Slonovich or something <laughs> at the Ford party? I said, yeah. And and he said, well, you got to call him. He's there. So I called Peter and he and Polly had moved from New York to Satakoy Avenue out in the valley. And he said, we're going to make this movie 
Roger Corman gave us the money to make this movie. We wrote the script. And uh, you want to work on it? And I said, sure. What do you want me to do? And he said, I don't know. I've never made a movie before. <laughs> Just come over. So that was the start. And the beauty of it was that it was so low budget that I got to do everything. And this was Targets? This was Targets. And I, so I learned everything there was. And that's when I really fell in love with making movies. And I said, if you can do this and make a living, I'm in, I'm, I'm doing this. I almost flunked out of school. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I know that was just one of, I think seven that you eventually did with Peter. And that's not even counting the other side of the wind and the more recent cool stuff you guys have done. But I guess, can you just talk about how that evolved to the extent where, so targets is 68 uh, last picture show is 71 paper moon, 73 Daisy Miller, 74. It looks like you had different producing responsibilities on each of these and, or different, di let's just say different responsibilities. And maybe you can characterize how they evolved up to the point where on, I believe Daisy Miller is where you impressed somebody else. Yes. Well, it, it was, um, it was interesting, Scott, because I didn't know it when I was, you know, on targets and even on last picture show, but I was sort of producing without knowing it because my, my view of what the producer does is he helps the director get the vision up on the screen, whatever that means. And so when I worked on, on targets, whatever needed to be done, I did, you know, whether it was shooting some of it, I acted in it. I built some of the set dressing. I built some of the sets. I found things. I made sandwiches. I watered the lawn. Uh, I rented <laughs> cars, you know, anything to get, keep the movie going. And it was the same on the last picture show. I was the location manager, but I worked with Polly and finding the locations, getting the locations. And I had another really fine mentor, Don Guest, who was our production manager. And he really taught me about the producing or the production side of things. So I was really working with and for the director rather than being kind of from the studio saying, saying, no, you can't do that. You can't right. spend that. I was finding options and alternatives to things to achieve what um, the director wanted or what their vision was for the story. So we made um, a last picture show. I was location manager. Then we made What's Up, Doc? Oh, next, yeah. Next year. I was also, I was Peter's assistant and, and also location manager. But I was learning how this worked. And who, you know, what a producer did. And in those days, the producer really was raising the money and getting the money. He wasn't actually making the movie. I just loved being on the set. Mm -hmm. That's where the action was. That's where things happened. That's where it was fun. And so on Paper Moon, which was our next movie, Peter made me associate producer. And on, on that, I, I really started learning about production and budgets and scheduling and data days and all that stuff. And I was liaising with the studio at Paramount then. I wasn't involved in the script yet, but I was heavily involved in post-production. Uh, and I learned that from uh, another of my mentors. I've had wonderful, wonderful mentors along the way, Verna Fields. Oh, yeah. Who's kind of a legend in her own. So I now had this kind of fully rounded, except for developing the script, which I, Peter and Polly did, and I yep. didn't really worry about it. And then we went off to make Daisy Miller in Rome. And that's when I 
met a young filmmaker at lunch who uh, was visiting our set. He was touring Europe because his TV movie, which was called Duel, uh, was being released as a feature in, in Europe. And that was Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Now, was there something about somebody was homesick or something? What was that? What was that about? Well, yeah, he he wanted to he wanted to you know uh, have lunch with uh, some people from home, and we he knew we were making the movie, and the publicity guy knew me, called me, and said, "Hey, I, I I've got this young filmmaker, and you know he, he's he's kind of getting a little homesick, and he you know like to see some some people um, and have lunch, and so some filmmakers, so we did." We had him to lunch at this little, um, it was a studio in downtown Rome called Safa Palatino. Just an amazing place to make a movie. And every lunch, uh, we had a long table where the cast and a bunch of the crew would, would gather. And so there was uh, Fred Sill, who was the pu publicity guy. There was uh, Stephen. And sitting next to Stephen was Verna Fields. And then there were our actors, Barry Brown, Sybil Shepherd. There was Peter. And I always had at the end of the table, I had a, a bowl of pasta. They knew it every day. I had, you know, win, win in Rome. Yeah, right. <laughs> so so uh, I wasn't there at the start of this lunch and I came in, they were all seated and I was introduced around and I met Stephen and I went over and I had two bites of pasta standing up and I went back to Peter and I asked him a question and I said, sorry, I got to go back to the set. And I left and I went back to the stage. And Verna later told me that Stephen said to her, that's the kind of guy I need. A guy who's more interested in the next shot than lunch. That's great. Isn't it amazing, though, when you think about, I mean, I'm sure you would have had a wonderful career uh, and he would have had a wonderful career if you'd never had that brief encounter. But yet you just think how different things might have been, right? Exactly. And, and you know, this, there's another lesson in that. It's always do your best because you never know who's looking, you know, always pay attention, always make the best coffee, collate the pages, always do your best. Because in that moment, it took five years and five years later, when Stephen was sitting on the beach with George Lucas in Hawaii, they were talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. And George said, well, who do you want to produce it? And Stephen said, let's see if we can find that guy, Frank Marshall. <laughs> and, and there had been no contact in the intervening years. No. None. And I got a call in my little hovel in, in Westwood. <laughs> and uh, they said, uh, this is George Lucas's office. Uh, uh, would you have time to come in for a meeting? I said, I can come right over. <laughs> yes, That's unbelievable. Course. Yeah, I guess in, in, in the yeah, in the interim, he had done a little uh, thing called the first Star Wars. Right. <laughs> so he and um, American graffiti and American graffiti. And right. Couple, uh, yeah. Well, and and you you'd still been busy though because I'm looking at a few more with with Peter with at Long Last Love Nickelodeon uh, looks like you started with Walter Hill on a few things and even with Scorsese on the Last Waltz which is a a big deal but what was it when you went in for this meeting I guess with Lucas and maybe Stephen was also there did you get a clear sense what they were looking for in a producer. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it, it was an interesting time because George was forming Lucasfilm and he wanted to have three movies in different phases of production, one in pre-production development, one shooting and one in post. 
And he had two going at that time. He had Empire Strikes Back and he had more American Graffiti. And this was going to be his third movie that he would uh, have in production. And, um, you know, George again supports his directors. And Stephen had just come off 1941. And I think that he had been so beaten up by the studio that he wanted someone to protect him and and be on his side from the production side. And that was my reputation. And he remembered that back. And uh, yes, I, I was doing fine. I, I had a great career going. I loved working with Walter. Um, we made two movies together. We're still great friends. Um, and uh, and working with Marty on Last Waltz was unbelievable. But then this opportunity came that, you know, only happens once in your lifetime. Well, so that first movie with Spielberg and Lucas and your first sole producing credit is is Raiders, which also ultimately is the first Oscar nomination for you. But um, I guess I wonder, did you you know, there's the idea. Oh, we got to get a guy like Frank Marshall. Oh, this is. And then on your part, oh, this is a cool thing. Lucas and Spielberg. But when you actually got down to business on this, did you find that your styles that you acclimated well to each other? Yeah, we got along great because I was all about solving problems and how to shoot the movie and how to to make the movie for a price. And, you know, it's interesting when I talk about it now, I still didn't really understand or was interested in how the movie got developed. Just give me the script and I'll tell you how to make it and and how to budget it and how to, you know, solve those problems. So that's changed now over the years where I'm involved in all the phases. But uh, back then it was really about I'm your I'm the guy who's going to help you get the movie made the way you want it to be made. And I'll take care of the studio and, you know, we'll figure things out. And then we all moved to to London and, you know, we had a great crew there and a great place to shoot at Elstree Studios and a lot of people that worked with George before on Star Wars. And it was just a great team and everybody was in support of the vision of that movie. And uh, so, you know, and <laughs> again, looking back, you know, we really we really hit it off and Kathy was there working with Steven and that's where we all met and we just had fun working together. And when we came back, Stephen offered Kathy E.T. and me Poltergeist. Well, and I, 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 I want to stop you only because if anyone here is, you know, living under a rock or something and they don't know who we're talking about. So Kathy is Kathleen Kennedy, your wife since 87. But you guys met on this project where she's his assistant. You're a producer for the first time. And I was lucky enough to be there the night a couple of years ago, three years ago, I think, when you guys got your Thalberg Awards, the highest honor that a producer can get. And you sort of shared, she she and you, this, uh, it was really a meet-cute uh, situation. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind just sharing again your perspective of how it came about. Well, yeah, it was, you know, again... These things just happen, you know, you, uh, that's the best way to describe it. Uh, you know, uh, when I met Kathy, she was great. She was working for Stephen. She was all about taking care of Stephen and getting what Stephen wanted. And, and, and that was great. And we became really best friends and she loved movies. And I never assumed I would meet someone who loved making movies as much as I did. So I was kind of married to the movies. 
And then there's this person that was kind of going along here and we had the, a lot of the same interests, but we were really friends. And, and then Stephen asked us to, you know, work on each other's movies uh, with Poltergeist and E.T. And then, you know, uh, we've kind of after E.T., I think we started going out, kind of kept it a secret because, you know, I really wanted people to to know that she had produced the movie and that that I wasn't, you know, because people just assume things. So we really kept it under the radar. And then when the two movies came out and they did so well and it had gone so well, Stephen said to us, well, why don't we form a company? And we said, well, we don't know what that means, but sure, let's, <laughs> let's do more movies together. And that's how Amblin started. And, you know, of course, then we, we were just together making these movies. And, and then we just said, well, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, well, um, it'd be a good thing. Let's get married, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and actually, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess the first sparks, I guess, not to uh, not to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you guys, the assignment from Steven was to, like, kind of make a model or something during the making of Raiders. Yeah, that's exactly right. Stephen asked Kathy one day to Stephen liked to design the action sequences with with actual models. Um, you know, now we do it with, uh, uh, you know, uh, previs and stuff. But back in those days, he loved to there's a lot of shots of him. We had this big model made of the desert where he's lying. He's looking through a camera. So he liked to design his sequences, his action sequences with models. So he said, you know, do you know anybody that can uh, make me some models? Well, I had grown up making Ravel models out in the valley with my dad. And I said, well, yeah. And I turned to Kathy and I said, you know, can you get some Ravel, you know, trucks, uh, you know, <laughs> German trucks and tanks and motorcycles? And she said, yeah. She said, you know, I love making models, too. And I said, you do? And she said, yeah. So we spent the weekend together putting, you know, together these models. And, you know, that was kind of the start. And then we fell in love. That's great. Amazing story. Lovely story. And uh, and as you say, I guess you each had your marching orders after that where you're doing Poltergeist, she's doing E.T. But there was, there even pre-Amblin, there, you guys would kind of weigh in on each like were you did you have um involvement with et for instance yes yes i was i was around you know we were there for the planning of both movies i mean kathy and i went up to steven's house we needed a rewrite on the script and we rewrote the script in a couple of nights uh all together on poltergeist and turned it in and and so she was around for that and and then et came second and i helped with the post-production um, because that was really my forte uh, because of Verna. So I helped her with the, the or I helped the, the movie with post-production. And uh, of course, we knew John Williams. And here's another crazy thing. John Williams was in the, the army with my dad. Oh, my God. So my dad has a lot to, a lot to do this. But Johnny was in the, the army band, played piano. My dad played guitar. And so and and he was out in the valley. So. I sort of grew up with Johnny and so, you know, and then he was Steven's composer. And so, you know, it's it's all been pretty magical. What a small world. So now I guess in in most scenarios, you know, if somebody were to say to you, Frank, who does the producer work for? 
like director can fire director doesn't like the screenwriter or whatever or doesn't like i don't know the production designer they can replace that person. who would you say the producer answers to I always answer to the director. Don't tell the studio that. Yeah, right, uh, right, right. <laughs> I'm I'm the director's producer. Okay, that's why, and that's why they like you. Yeah, yeah. I, I figure that's you know I've really always seen that as my job is to help get that vision up on the screen and figure out all of the logistics and the stuff because the um, the producer asks a thousand questions a day. And the director answers a thousand questions a day. That's the difference in the roles. And so it's my job to find out what's in their head and then how to execute it. Now, why, you know, for a lot of people, I think they dream of being the director because then they're holding the, you know, the the reins, I guess, in a sense. Why for you is it I don't want to say more appealing because you also obviously have directed. But why was that something that? held appeal to you to be enabling somebody else's vision? Well, I'm, I, th- I guess I'm a problem solver. I, I love solving problems. I love getting things done. And that's more of the producer's job. And I, I, you know, it's, and I have directed, as you say, and that's really tough, at least for me. I mean, you know, everything's on your shoulders and you get the credit when it works and you get the blame when it doesn't. So, you know, I just feel that my my skill set really uh, in most cases fits being a producer better than a director. But then there are some stories I want to tell myself. And uh, I was lucky enough to learn from uh, Stephen and Bob Zemeckis because they gave me the second unit director jobs and the job of the second unit director is to imitate the first unit. director. So so I learned from the best. So I took those, uh, those experiences and then applied them to, uh, you know, my four or five movies that I've directed. Well, and so that was all you, you were working with those guys most during these Amblin, I guess the Amblin decade. Um, and, Obviously, with Zemeckis, it's it's Back to the Future, and then also Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where I think you know what people should remember that was really the first blending of live action and animation, right? Which was just a whole revolutionary concept. And and Back to the Future, I guess, was unlike. Um, well, did you know with Raiders that you were getting involved with a multi film endeavor from the beginning? Yes, on okay. Raiders, we knew that we we're going to make three of them. Okay. We all agreed that we would make three. And with Back to the Future, was it also always understood this is going to be a series? No. Back to the Future was a, a single movie. And then when it did so well, uh, Bob and Bob Gale uh, thought, hmm, well, there might be another place to go with a DeLorean. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, I mean, I'm looking back at the at that era, and it's kind of incredible that you were pumping out five or six movies a year in the, in the mid eighties, uh, and not like phoning it in. These are, these are major, major movies. We're not even talking as much in depth about the Goonies and all these other things that you had a hand in. And I, I guess I just wonder how for, for as long as you did, are you sustaining that, uh, were you sustaining that level of, of, uh, output? Well, I, I, part of it is that Kathy and I were married, so we were together all the time. Right. We could go off and, and each go in direction. But we worked with incredibly talented 
and fun people. I mean, when you look at the directors we worked with and the projects we worked with, it was a golden age. It, it, it's not going to happen again. And we were we were able to just to do what we wanted. And we had great projects and they kept coming up. And somebody, you know, Joe Dante say, I want to make Gremlins. And we go, OK. <laughs> and, you know, and it was and and people trusted us. The studio trusted us to bring it in on budget. Nothing ever got out of control. And, uh, you know, it was just a really, really uh, interesting and fun time. And I think because the three of us were together all the time, that made it work. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So... I, you know, as you say, it is the job of a producer to solve problems that may not be anticipated that arise. And I just want to bring up a couple of things that you were presented with as a producer and ask you just in the moment, what are you thinking? How do you, how do you, do you, how do you even see the, the next day uh, over the horizon, you know, or how, how you're going to get there? So, I mean, the most famous, most famous one, I guess, was with, with uh second, I think it was the second Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom in 84. Harrison Ford gets injured, and this is a hugely expensive sequel, and it would have been a disaster if you had to shut down, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, again, it's just you take one step at a time, and I'm not sure we could have done this without a director like Steven, but, you know, we had several meetings. First of all, we had to figure out how to take care of Harrison, what that would take, and then what the re recuperation time would be. And once we understood that, then we just had to reschedule uh, the movie. And amazingly enough, we had a we had a wonderful st stunt double for Harrison, Vic Armstrong. And so um, he had done the first movie and he had done half of this movie, uh, Temple of Doom. So Stephen was able to figure out how to shoot the scenes, mostly in the mine, in the caves and stuff, uh, and, and because there's a lot of action, without actually cutting to Indy's face. So we shot all of the shots that we would have shot, and most of them were with, with Vic, but some of them would have been Harrison had he had been there. But we shot all these, these sequences, and then when Harrison was well again and healed, he came back and we turned around and shot the medium and close-up shots of Harrison. And I'm not sure there's another director except for Steven that could have done that because those are the days we were on film and there were, you know, there were no avids and there was, you know, we were cutting on film. So you, you didn't have the, you know, the luxury of having an iPad going, oh, yeah, that's the shot I want. Oh, that's <laughs> the shot I want. It was all in Steven's head. It's Pretty incredible. Amazing. Back with Steven, you had great success in particular with in the mid to late 80s with Color Purple and Empire of the Sun. And I it brings up a, a thing that, you know, it's it's no longer quite uh, af quite 
applicable based on things that happen in the, I guess, Schindler's List onwards. But I just want to read you a funny quote of yours from around that time where you say, quote, working with Steven Spielberg is a lot of fun. You don't win many Oscars, but you do have a lot of fun, close quote. And I think what people forget is that pre Schindler's List, he was, for whatever reason, kind of often left out. I mean, that Color Purple, 11 Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, but no directing nomination for Steven, just like Jaws years before then and 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 oh for 11 ties the turning point at the oscars then empire of the sun oh for six these are great movies that for whatever reason i guess i just wonder what do you think that was about was there jealousy of steven at that point i do think there was jealousy and that that he could actually do these sort of popcorn movies and then do something serious you know when you look at color purple and you look at empire of the sun they're in amazingly shot and acted and, you know, deserved all the nominations. But I just don't think that people were able to accept the fact that Stephen could do everything. Right, right. And uh, so, you know, we got nominated, but we didn't win any. Right, right. Well, okay, so this, you know, there's all kinds of stuff the rest of that decade, uh, Land Before Time, always with Audrey, Audrey Hepburn's last role, Cape Fear, Hook, and... Then you direct for the first time, which is the thread that's going to connect, of course, to Bee Gees. And here it's with Arachnophobia in 1990 with Killer Spiders. Then the next one is Alive with a cannibal situation and a plane crash uh, in 93. You were not making life easy on yourself, right? I mean, these are tough sells. Well, I actually thought Arachnophobia was the right kind of movie to start with because it's kind of a B-movie I kind of understood, I understood horror, you know, and comedy. Right. And it seemed like um, the right choice for me to start. I had done a lot of second unit by then. Um, I hadn't worked with actors very much, mostly stunt people. But, you know, when I met Jeff Daniels, he made me so comfortable that I said, yeah, I really want to do this. And, uh, and we got started. And then I was really interested in the story. You know, as I said, there's, you know, the difference between directing and producing are, are, for me, are really the stories that I feel I want to tell. And that continued on all, all the way to Eight Below, whereas I want to tell that story about the dogs. Yeah, yeah. And that one, I think, opened at number one, right? That was a, yeah, quite a yeah, big... Yeah, that was, that was my most successful. Wow. So what was it that happened? Uh, I mean, here's... Here's a quote from, from Kathy, quote, leaving Stephen was the hardest thing Frank and I ever did, but it was done only because we had personal things that we wanted to do together, close quote. This was when, I believe in 1992, you and she start the Kennedy Marshall Company, which ever since then has been within the auspices of or partnering with one studio or another. But why at that time when you're having so much success with Stephen, did you guys decide we're going to we're going to go it alone? Well, I think I'd say that it was really for a couple of reasons. One that, you know, we had gotten married and we had talked about having making our own movies and I was starting directing. And also, you know, Amblin had gotten so big by then that we were spending more time in the office than we were making the movies. And I think we just wanted to go back to making our own movies. And Stephen was it was an incredibly tough decision, as Kathy said. And, but Stephen embraced it, and he was very gracious about it. And as you know, we're still making movies together. Exactly. And and just uh, to that 
point as a final pre-BG's section here, I wonder if I can just mention a few of these that you guys and well, that you particularly have done since that chapter began where, you know, I know, let's say a little tidbit that I'm going to prompt you just about each of these and then you say whatever you want. But I mean, The Sixth Sense is 1999. This is a spec script from a basically an unknown filmmaker, right? And not only do you recognize the potential in it, but you then find a way to get with a with a quite limited budget the guy who he wrote it dreaming of, Bruce Willis, to be in it. So just anything you you know, I, I think it's these are kind of ways to illustrate what a producer does when he's doing it right, like you do. So anything you could say about that? Sure. Well, the, the you know, it's the still to this day the best spec script I've ever read. And um you know, we immediately jumped into the to the competition to to get the script. It was we had our deal at Disney then, and that's part of the job of a producer. We called um, David Vogel, who was our executive, and said, "Stop eating lunch and go read the script." <laughs> and he he immediately you know saw how great it was, and so we got the script. But then the studio said, "This is a first time filmmaker. You know, we're going to give you." $10 million to make the movie all in actors, everything. And we said, oh, okay. So um, I went tonight and I said, so did you write this with anybody in mind? He said, yeah, Bruce Willis. I said, well, that's not going to fit in to <laughs> our budget, but I n- knew Bruce and he was shooting Armageddon on the lot. And uh, I knew that he was interested in these kind of paranormal kind of uh, stories and because we had talked about doing one together. So I called his agent. I said, I want to send Bruce a script. And his agent said, sure. And so, you know, after about two weeks and I didn't hear anything, I called him back. And sure enough, he hadn't sent to, to Bruce because it was a first-time director and blah, blah, blah. So I just walked over to the set. And I said, Bruce, I got a script I want you to read. And I handed it to him. Nice, nice. And that's what a producer does. Yeah. <laughs> And you got and uh, so he got on board and that was, I mean, just yeah. probably one of the from budget to profits, one of the most successful you yeah. could have done. Right. Yeah. And, you know, to, to Bruce's credit, he knew a good project when he read it and it was c- completely different for him to do. And, you know, so it was he did say to me, I need you on the set every day. And I said, happy to be there. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Knight's a wonderful director and made a great movie. Four years later, Seabiscuit, I think, came with a director attached, which isn't always the case. But this one was, I believe, Best Picture nomination, right? Yeah. Again, a wonderful script that Gary Ross wrote. You know, we, we really just get attracted to to stories and to the scripts. It's just that we seem to like stuff that a lot of people like. <laughs> right. and, but it's really about the story. And in that case, you you know, you couldn't make that story up. It was based on a true story and a wonderful book written by Laura Hildegram. And, uh, you know, and Gary's a wonderful director. So, again, a great project. We we dove into the world of horse racing and and spent time in Kentucky and, you know, just had a wonderful time making that movie. So one that I know was a, a beast for you guys to just technically deal with and put together and just a huge scale thing was Benjamin Button, uh, which is 2008 ends up another very acclaimed and recognized movie, but it wasn't easy getting there with that one. Right. 
No, we had that one for quite a while. And actually, um, it was a case of technology catching up with with the movie. And it had had several iterations and several scripts. And and to be honest, I think several directors until David Fincher read Eric Roth's script. And again, it was the script that that got that movie made. And then David was faced with a challenge. He said, I, I want this to be one actor. And because up to that time, we had, because of the, such the, the huge age range in the character, we were casting two or three different actors to be the different ages of Benjamin. And David wanted it to be one actor. And that's what he sold Brad Pitt on, is this is always going to be you, uh, no matter what age it is. And then, of course, his challenge, and which he loves, was how do we do the visual effects? And uh, he, you know, coming from ILM, kind of amazing, people don't know, he started at ILM, that uh, he, he put together this sort of off-the-shelf package of how to do the aging and the de-aging. Um, so, uh, again, uh, just an incredible story that, you know, um, then was complicated by... We were shooting in New Orleans when when Katrina hit. And so, you know, of course, the studio wanted us to go somewhere else, but we had committed and we felt that it was important to, for the comeback of the city to go back and shoot there, although there was no infrastructure, but we got the movie made. And I think it really being there uh, adds to the the movie. And, Absolutely. Adds, you know, it becomes a character in the movie, that, that town. I think... Uh maybe the the franchise that you have actually done the most installments of and had huge success with is the Bourne franchise, which you've been with from the start. And Matt Damon has said, quote, had it not been for Frank, we never would have had a franchise, close quote. And I know that really started with, truly with the first, where you came on fairly late. You've got a, in that case, pre-Greengrass Doug Lyman, who's an indie guy thrown into the studio world for i guess the first time on a huge budget like this and you had you had a lot to kind of i mean that was just a random call like how far into the first into the first movie well i had been called earlier on it uh, like six months before because the rightfully so the studio thought it was a big movie for doug and ali brecker called me and uh said, you know, we think we need a creative producer and a, a uh, production producer. And they had the production producer, which is was Pat Crowley, uh, but they, they wanted a creative producer. And, you know, it was at the time that they called me, we had two young kids. It meant going to Europe for six months. I didn't want to do it. Uh, it was a hard movie. But five months later... <laughs> Uh, they got into trouble because the creative producer, his wife had some complications from her pregnancy and they left and went back to New York. And so they needed a, somebody to step in right away. And at that time, it was much more appealing to me because <laughs> uh, I didn't have to go away for six months. And, right. you know, uh, there was a place in Paris. There's a house in Paris for me and to bring my family over over Christmas and it, it, you know, it looked a lot better. So <laughs> I stepped in and, uh, you know, and then the movie had a lot of ups and downs. And I think the fact that I had already directed a couple of things by then helped me 
realized that there was a great movie there. We just had to find it. And so, I, you know, I worked with everybody to find that movie and we went through 9-11 and there was a lot of challenges there too, but we came out the other end with the born identity and, you know, then uh, we went from there. So it's- Well, and I just want to note that Matt and people have, have, you're you're, uh, being extra humble here, but I mean, that ending- was not the original ending and it was later than almost ever that it was changed because you were able to make the case right and then we had greengrass on this podcast saying similar things about the subsequent installments that with with something of that size and scale you could be a great producer but not necessarily uh be able to handle something of that scale yet that's become i guess through your through your earlier work something that doesn't throw you No, I had all this experience in Europe. I had all this experience with action. Nothing fazed me. So, you know, the fact that we went to Moscow and we actually shot a chase scene in Moscow, (laughs) that's a challenge that I want. Right. And uh, and so it's really putting together the right pieces and going and right. You know, we shot in Shanghai in 1985 on uh, Empire of the Sun. No one from the West had ever shot there. And they may not have since, right. <laughs> but we figured out how to do it. So I love those kind of challenges. And, uh, and, and Bourne and working with Matt and Tony Gilroy and, and Paul, you know, the genre really struck me and the changing the genre and this character who doesn't want to be a, a sniper and a killer. It had an emotion to it. It wasn't just an action picture. It really had substance. And again, the story really attracted me. And that's why I love working on those movies. So one final pre-BG's question, if I may. You have, I guess in in 2012, it's almost a decade uh, since Kathy took the job with Lucasfilm. And I guess, therefore, was on hiatus from from Kennedy Marshall, and you have been in that time since responsible for for hugely successful, but primarily sequels, right? I mean, we're looking at The Bourne Legacy and Jason Bourne. We're looking at Jurassic World, biggest global opening of any movie ever up to that time. Uh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, then Jurassic World at Camp Cretaceous. Then you've just come through the pandemic with another. And so I guess I just wonder, is that reflective of the nature of the business today that it's just harder to make non-sequels, remakes, or adaptations of existing IP? Or is that now the kind of movie that you just personally gravitate towards? Well, it's a little bit of both, Scott. Um, You know, (laughs) Kathy was doing the Jurassic Parks, and then when she took over Lucasfilm, she couldn't do that anymore. So she lateraled it to me. And so it was an easy step in with Steven and the studio. And um, so that's kind of how that happened. And then, you know, I do like to to do only one big movie at a time, although we're we're developing other different movies, but not a giant tentpole movie like these movies take all your time and attention because they're so big. And so that's kind of where these sequels have come from. And certainly I want to continue with the Bourne movies as well. We're still looking at some some new stories that haven't been told before. But, um, you know, I also still talk to Kathy at dinner. So, you know, we share. <laughs> right. we, you know, we, we still talk about our movies 
And uh, so uh, that's how that all gets done. Okay, so this is now the uh, the main course. I've got to just ask you, I what, your your love of music. Where does that? I know you. You of course your your father was an influence. You said you were interested in music growing up, but I mean I've been to like covered the Oscar nominees luncheon and you're DJing. So I mean I think people may not realize the extent of your passion for music and and knowledge about it, including with something like like the BGs. So pre this project, just. What was your relationship with music? Well, I've played the guitar since I was like nine uh, or eight. I don't remember. I played the trumpet first. But as I say, I grew up and there was music and, and there were guitars around my house all the time. And I was, you know, in groups in high school and college. And uh, I just loved music. I loved listening to it. I loved making it. I loved playing it. Uh, and, and so... And I made a lot of friends in the music business. And I do think that if I hadn't gone into movies, I would have gone into music. So being able to blend my two loves, uh, movies and music, has been just really special. And this, with this renaissance now of, of documentaries, and particularly music documentaries, has been you know, really great. And uh, uh, I've been able to take advantage of that. And it was really just sort of a a walk down memory lane that uh, inadvertently led to a Bee Gees doc. All, and by the way, we should just, I want to reiterate, 40 plus years after, you know, it's not like this is your first rodeo with a music doc, because again, the last waltz is like the the gold standard. And here we are now 43 years after that. Yeah, I mean, I listen, to give everybody the credit due, I mean, I was a production uh, line producer on the last waltz. Uh, I just got things done. <laughs> I didn't have anything to do with creating it. So right. that, that was Marty and Ravi and that group. But yeah, I I loved being a part of it. I loved being up all night listening to the band and Amy Lou Harris and you know and the Staples and uh, all the rest of them. So you know it's kind of not like work. It's so when you know I've I've been doing docs now for a little over ten years kind of started back with an ESPN uh, 30 for 30. And then uh, they've, you know, they've really come in. I, you know, they've, they've really come into the forefront now because I think that people used to think that documentaries were either going to be boring or educational or this. And now they're seeing that these docs are so exciting and, and can be so special and moving and ex and, you know, take them to places they've never been. And, and so um, my first music doc was, uh, was with Alex Gibney, who directed uh, Sinatra. Oh, right. And again, that's because of people that I have known in the business who then came to me and said, you know, the Sinatras want to do this 100th anniversary and they want to do a doc. And, and I had done... Uh, uh, the Armstrong Lie with Alex, and I, I knew Alex loved music too. He's a huge music lover, even though he doesn't do many music docs. So, you know, you just get the right people around. It's about a, the docs are really about a collaboration. A lot, it's a real team effort as opposed to a feature. And, you know, what I love about them is you don't know what you're going to do as, as opposed to, you know, a feature movie when you know exactly what you're going to do every day, you've got a script, you, you've got a schedule, you know, you know, every hour what you're shooting with a doc, 
It's it's freedom. It's constant discovery. It's trying this. It's trying that. And and a lot of it is really made in the cutting room, which I love the post process. So being a director is really more of being a director with an editor or editors. And that's and then you have the support team that gives you the archival and you say, well, what about this? And so it's a real team effort. And I loved making the Bee Gees because it started at Capitol Records. I was up on the top of of the building. It had just been refurbished. And the new CEO, Steve Barnett, was there and he was we were talking about the old days. And I told him how I would drive with my dad down the Hollywood freeway. And he'd say, there's the building I'm going to work in. And guess what it looks like? And I said, I don't know. And he said, it's a stack of 45 records. And sure enough, if you look at it, that's what it is. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So, you know, we were talking about doing docs. This is now five years ago. So because the record companies, um, and in this case, uh, UMG, Universal Music Group, they were looking for ways to reinvigorate catalogs. And And Steve said, I just bought the Bee Gees. And I said, well, I love the Bee Gees music. How about them? And he said, well, I've got a kind of a five-year plan, and, and in the plan is a documentary. So Barry's coming out in a couple of weeks because they're doing a Grammy tribute. And so why don't I bring him over here, and you'll meet, and you guys can talk about it. And so I came back two weeks later to that wonderful office on the top of the Capitol Record Building, where I kind of grew up on the floor of Studio A. And I met Barry, and we really hit it off. And... You know, I shared the story about coming from a musical family. I'm the oldest, like he is, two brothers, grew up with guitars and music in the house. And, you know, that started this wonderful uh, journey that I went on for four years. And this is your first time in 14 years directing. Was it something you just sort of slip right back into or is it uh, uh, an adjustment? Well, no, I kind of, you know, it's storytelling. And, And now with all the tools that we have and... It wasn't about worrying about the schedule. It's as I said, it's kind of a freeform way of making a movie. Where um, I, then I thought, well, who do I want to produce the movie for me <laughs> to do those yeah. things I need done? And I had just seen uh, the Beatles eight days a week, and I figured, well, if there's somebody that can find Beatles footage that's never been seen right. before, I want that guy. <laughs> and it was Nigel Sinclair, and he has a wonderful company called Whitehorse Pictures, and he brought with him Jeannie uh, Elfant Festa, uh, our co-producer, and a, a wonderful writer named Mark Monroe, and the whole team there, and they were my support, and and uh, that's why we have this, this, you know, amazing movie. So going into it, was there one thing that you most hoped to learn, and was there then making it one thing that you were most surprised to learn? Well, I think what you've got to do is is look for the heart of the story. And for me, the heart of the story was family and songwriting. And yes, the, the music and the stardom and all that and the, you know, the amazing celebrity they had and and all that. But I was really interested in what how that happened, you know, because I <laughs> I had a family that was very musical when I was young, too. And and their dream that they had in Australia 
kind of tricky because they're English and then they moved to Australia and they went back. So we had to tell that really quickly. But I was interested in in how what the genesis and how they worked together and how they sang together and how they wrote their songs. And that really became the heart of the story. And I believe it's they stayed together and kept coming back together and overcoming these obstacles is because they were a family. And they had a great supportive parents. And, you know, um, that was really the key. So that was the heart of the story for me. So we wove the things around that. And and then I started discovering things like, um, you know, how Saturday Night Fever came together and how they created the drum loop. And, you know, and those are the golden nuggets that are so wonderful when you're making a doc. The, the, the things you don't know that you discover and, and then you make a right turn and and then you have to decide the job of the director. OK, wh what do I want to recreate? How do I want to shoot the interviews? You know, so there's a little directing going on there. But as I say, the big part of it is is in the cutting room. And that was really fun. Last question. If you needed to convince a young person to check out the Bee Gees music. They're great. You know, it's not just Saturday. It's not just the movie Saturday Night Fever. Uh, which song, having now been immersed in this for years, which song would you encourage them to listen to first? I'd say How Deep Is Your Love, because it is a real love song and it was written as a love song and their songs touch your emotions. They tell a story and they're from the heart and their harmonies, their musicality in it. And then the words are, are really special. So I would check out How Deep Is Your Love first. Great. Well, can't thank you enough. Thank you so much, uh, Frank. Really appreciate it. And enjoy the Emmys. All right. Thanks, Scott. How deep is your love? Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.